City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor John Andrade is preaching through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and the sermon title is A Case for Good Works. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, humble servants, seeking your face today, collectively, God, as your people. After having sung your praises, Lord, now we come before your word and we just tremble before your word. Your word is powerful, God. And I pray that you would pierce through any distractions in our minds, any distractions in our hearts, God, minister to our souls through your word. Transform us, Lord. Teach us. Guide us and instruct us, Lord. We look to you through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, through whom we are able to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we acknowledge you. We praise you, Jesus. And Father, we want all things to be done for your glory and your honor. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So for this morning, I had titled the sermon, A Case for Good Works. A Case for Good Works. And my goal this morning is I hope to challenge you. Um, I hope to challenge you. Um, I do want to encourage you. I do want to surround you with the grace of God. And I do want you, you to leave here fully assured of salvation. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you are saved by the grace of God through faith. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to walk away from here knowing I am a believer. But if the Lord would help me to fulfill my mission this morning, my goal really this morning is to challenge you. And I want to build a case for good works in the lives of individual Christians. I want to see this church a little bit more, a lot more zealous for good works in their lives as we run this race as Christians, that we would run fast, that we would run swiftly, that we would strip off every single weight that entangles us and slows us down and holds us back. I want us to run fast as Christians. So I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you this morning. Um, But before I really preach, I just want to recap kind of where we've been in the series. So this is the last of a sermon series that we've been in, and the sermon series has been called Rightly Handling the Word of Truth, Rightly Handling the Truth, and it's based off of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, where the Apostle Paul, he speaks to Timothy, and he says to rightly handle the word of truth, to rightly handle it or accurately divide the word of truth. The word of God is, as you all know, incredibly powerful. And there are some who have taken it and misused the Word of God, as we've seen over and over and over through our series. There are people who take the Scriptures and this powerful world, Word of God. And the Word says it's like a sword. And when people start swinging it clumsily, it can do a lot of damage, but yet it's still powerful. And so this very Word, we are told to rightly handle it, to hold it well, and to uphold it for what it's actually saying, and to not misuse the scriptures because the scriptures are the very words of God, and so we want to rightly handle them. So um, a couple of things that we've covered. Uh, Just by way of recap, we've covered um, Pastor Michael Britt. He came and was a guest speaker. He spoke on God is love, a commonly misused passage for people who would say, don't talk to me about judgment. Don't talk to me about sin. Don't talk to me about hell. Don't talk to me about the wrath of God because the Bible says somewhere, doesn't it, God is love. 
And so at the end of the day, I don't want to hear anything else. It's just an end-all, be-all statement. I'm not sure where it says it in the Bible, but I know it says it somewhere. Don't talk to me about any of that wrath stuff. We know that as people who rightly handle the word of truth, amen, God is love, more loving and compassionate than we could ever even begin to fathom. Our God is love. And at the same time, the scriptures very clearly teach, even in the surrounding verses of 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where it says God is love, that this God of love will surely judge and condemn sin and sinners in his great wrath. And so we know we're called to rightly handle the word of truth. Last week, uh, Pastor Eric spoke on don't judge. And this is kind of the same concept, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not lest ye be judged. And you kind of get the same mentality. Don't talk to me about sin. Don't ever speak into my life. And a lot of us were talking about this in our city groups a couple days ago. This will be fresh in our minds. We need to be a people who are not judgmental. The church can be very critical and very hypocritical. And we want to be cautious of that and not judge. But at the same time, we do. We are called to speak into sin. And I hope that you, if any of, I, if any of you ever see me walking in misconduct, I would hope that you would speak to me. And I would hope that my response wouldn't be, hey, don't judge me. I want to be nourished by you as fellow believers. So this is some examples of places where we want to rightly handle the word of truth. And I want to show you just real quick as we're setting the stage for the sermon that this is something that is not new. This is a battle that we face, but it is not new in the least bit. And so I want to show you a couple places, even in the scriptures themselves, that teach that there are people who mishandle the word of truth. And so if you look with me just quickly at Matthew chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And you all know this passage. This is Jesus. He is being tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He's fasting, and he is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And in this particular temptation, the devil takes him up on a high precipice, the pinnacle of the temple. And what he says to him is, Jesus, just jump down. Jump off of the high point of the, of the temple. And I'm going to quote to you a reason why from the scriptures themselves. And he quotes Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12, this wonderful psalm of protection. And he says, don't you know? He's going to protect you. The angels are going to guard you. They're going to bear you up. And essentially, you're not even ever going to dash your foot against a stone. So you should be good to just jump off of the highest point of this temple and jump down. And according to Psalm 91, you're going to be fine. We know Jesus' response, rightly handling the word of truth. He says, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But see, Satan accurately quoted the scripture, but misapplied it. He didn't switch it up. It was an actual quotation from the Psalms themselves. But he takes the word of God and twists it so that the people of God often hear the words. And we say, that sounds like scripture, but it's misapplied. Another place, um, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16. And it'll be up on the screen, but if you want to flip there, you can, or just make a note of it. But here the apostle Peter speaks of our brother and apostle Paul, and he says, there are a lot of people who are unlearned and unstable, and they twist and they distort Paul's writings as they do the rest of Scripture. Have you guys ever met somebody who is unlearned? And maybe even a little bit unstable, who takes the word of God and they just begin quoting scriptures to you as though they are authoritative and they say, hey, here's this, but they're unlearned, unstable, but they are twisting the, script, the scriptures. And it says to their own destruction. To their own destruction, they are twisting the scriptures. And so we never want to be a people like that. We want to be a people who actually uphold the very words of God and let them shine forth in all the radiant glory with which they were meant to apply to the lives of believers because his word is powerful. 
Jeremiah says it's like a fire. His words like a fire and like a hammer that shatters the rock. Jeremiah 23, 29. His word is powerful, and we want all of the radiant glory to be shining forth. Um, so I just want to make one more note uh, by way of just introduction with this is I don't want anybody here to think that we're trying to ruin your favorite Bible verses with this series. Um, I have talked to some people. Um, there was one person who said, look, Jeremiah 29, 11 is like my favorite, favorite verse. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, how it's often misapplied. And I felt bad for him because I'm like, I don't want you to think that you can't ever talk about Jeremiah 29, 11 around us anymore. We love Jeremiah 29, 11. We just want it to be rightly understood. And if it's your favorite Bible verse, we want it to be even more your favorite Bible verse because we have let it shine even more brightly than it was before. And so if it's misused and it's your favorite, how much more if it's accurately used? God is love. And I want everybody to feel free to be around me and say, First John 4, 8, John, God is love. And John's not going to just clobber you and say, wait a second, do you understand? I'm, it can still be your favorite, and we want it to be your favorite. Just we want it to be even more your favorite. So um, I want to just give you guys my sort of outline for anybody who's taking notes. I know there's some people who take notes in here, just so you can kind of be easier to follow along. And even if they're just mentally there for you, you'll be able to follow along with it a little bit better. Our passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I want to talk to you today about how this scripture, first we'll talk about how this scripture is misunderstood and misapplied. So first we'll just spend some time talking about how it's misunderstood and how it's misapplied. Second, we're going to talk about how this scripture should be understood. And then lastly, we're going to talk about, kind of get practical with each other, how this scripture ought to be applied when it's properly understood. And so we are in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to know that I'm going to be very careful here because we are in a very cherished portion of scripture, especially for us kind of more reformed people. This is a wonderful and rightly so treasured portion of scripture because we declare very clearly that as we sang even before, my works can never, ever, ever justify me before God. I can never earn my salvation. Never. And I understand that and I know that. But a lot of times when you talk to especially people from the more reformed tradition, maybe even with their hands on their hips, head swinging a little bit, they're going to say, don't talk to me about good works, John. I don't want to hear anything about good works. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and we do not dispute that. Amen. Saved by the grace of God. We're going to talk about the gospel in a little bit. But I don't want that to have you be in a place where you can never talk about my good works being in a place where they're pleasing to the holy God of all creation because I am called to live zealous for good works. And I want my life to be fixed on, the, on Jesus Christ, and I want to run the race quickly. I don't want to be entangled by things of the world. I want to be an alive and awake and active Christian, zealous for good works in my walk with Jesus Christ. So again, my goal here is to challenge you. And if it makes any of you uncomfortable, I pray that you would talk to me because I do want to speak into good works, but never think that I am undermining the gospel. So we're going to look at how this verse 
These verses can be misapplied, and especially I want us to focus on verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to walk through Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to work our way through the scripture, look at it in context, even in the context of the book itself, the context of all of Paul's writings, and then in the context of the New Testament as a whole. But we're just going to start with these couple verses right here, and then we'll talk about how they can be misapplied. So it says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we say amen to this. And again, this is one of those things, I still want this to be your favorite Bible passage if it is. I want you to be able to talk with me about it and feel free to say, because we are, amen. But I'm going to talk about some of the ways that it can be misused and lead to a Christian becoming lackadaisical. Becoming lazy, falling asleep in our faith, and not being that zealous for good works kind of Christian that we're called to be. So some common misuses. First is, even the best of what I do as a Christian is like a filthy rag before God. Stay with me here. And sometimes we will say, anytime there is good works in the New Testament, I'm just going to substitute it for filthy rags because that's really what good works always mean, filthy rags. We're going to unpack this as we go. I believe that's a strong misuse. Also, my good works as a believer don't please God at all. Another misuse. I'm just a wretch who can do nothing good before the holy God of all creation. And lastly, in my walk with Christ, all that I do is just a pile of rubbish before the Lord. Now, as with all misuses and all twistings of Scripture and misunderstandings of Scripture, we certainly understand and know that there is a beautiful, wonderful nugget of truth within it. I know, just like Satan misquoted Psalm 91, I do believe God is going to protect me. I believe his angels are ministering to me. They're keeping me safe. But my application of it isn't, I'm just going to jump off buildings now and jump out of planes without a parachute. Amen. God is a protector God. He protects his people. Amen. But I'm not going to misuse it. And in the same way with this, I think sometimes we can go so far with, my works have, are just filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, to mean that now as a Christian, when I love my wife and I raise my children up to be godly children, God's just like, that's a filthy rag to me, John. I'm not pleased. There's no pleasure I'm taking in that. Just more filthy rags you're producing. Misuses, I believe, of saying that good works are filthy rags. Now, we are people who cling to the gospel. We hold fast to the gospel and we believe the gospel. And I know, and I know 100% that I am never able to take even any of my best works on my best day times a million and walk up before God and say, you owe me salvation now. It's a filthy rag in that respect. I can never obtain salvation because of my good works. My best, best, best day will never fully please God enough to where he's going to look at me and say, John, you've earned salvation. I can't. It's purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, perfect, spotless, blameless Son of God, the eternal Son of God who came into his own creation, lived the sinless life that I 
have never even come close to living and gave it up on the cross in my place. The Jesus who could have called legions of angels, who with a word could have just destroyed his enemies, but instead he endured their hostility and took on himself all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my guilt, and on the cross was punished as though it was him. And then he turns and looks at me who has faith in him and says, I'm applying my righteousness to you. That perfect, spotless righteousness that I could never earn, I could never obtain, he gave it to me. By grace, through faith, not of good works, lest anybody should boast. No one can boast. No one can boast. Salvation is a free gift. The cross is the great equalizer. Everybody is mowed down to an equal level at the cross, and you come by faith, humbly before God, saying, I need a salvation that I can't earn on my own. So again, we say amen to that. I can never earn salvation. I never deserve salvation. So with that established, though, I want to ask the next question, which sometimes I think we take it to a misuse. As I walk with Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in me, are we to now say that the Holy Spirit is producing in born-again, saved, regenerated, new creation John, is the Holy Spirit producing in me filthy rags constantly? Are we to go so far as to say that? I think sometimes in our immense appreciation for the fact that I'm not saved by good works, we want to belittle all good works to a low level because we can't ever even talk about it because it smells like heresy. When I want to say I am clinging to the gospel, but at the same time God has prepared good works for me to walk in, and I need to be zealous for good works, that I'm not producing filthy rags. Sometimes we might also think, and say that our obedience to Jesus is as rubbish. Or that God is not pleased with our labors in Christ. And so today, again, I want to urge you and compel you to good works. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 it says, Consider how you might provoke one another to good works. Consider it. You might even need to get creative. Consider, ponder it. How might you encourage your fellow brothers and sisters to good works? Then you get that famous Hebrews 10, 25, forsake not the assembling together of the body. That's part of the reason we gather together, so we can might learn how to provoke one another to good works. John, you're getting a little bit slack in this regard. I want to encourage you. And not clobbering me over the head with a club, but at the same time saying, John, I want you to walk as you ought to walk. I want you to run the race. I want you to fight the fight. I want you to be on fire for the Lord. And that's my hope and prayer for every single one of you. And that has been my prayer for this last week leading up with this sermon. I'm saying, God, I want you to motivate your church. I never want us to be lazy. I never want us to be slack. I want us to be on fire for you, Jesus Christ. Please, would you make us on fire? Would you make us, Lord, a people today who are on fire for you, God? Would you move in our hearts? Please, Lord, help us to not be passive. Help us to not just sit on our hands, O oh Lord, but instead run this race. Please, would you help us, God? Motivate us. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so, um, I want to read to you uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. And this will start us. Um, and if you're keeping track of kind of where we've been, um, I'm moving into section 2 of the sermon outline, which is um, how Ephesians 2 ought to be understood. But I want to look at a verse out of Paul's writings in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. 
which says everything that we've been saying. Speaking of Jesus, he is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so I'd ask you, are you zealous for good deeds? There's a lot of things that we're zealous for. And are you zealous for good deeds before the Lord? I know as a non-Christian, and I know many of you have walked in sin and incredible darkness before Jesus came in and saved your soul and saved my soul, and I know that there's a lot of people who can relate to this. But I used to be pretty zealous for evil deeds. And maybe you were too. Waking up thinking about how I might obtain some form of sin which is going to nourish my sinful flesh. I'm zealous for it. And if I don't have it, I need to, my zeal increases so that I must find it and I must obtain it. There's a zeal in the sinner's heart to pursue sinful things. And I've walked in that. And many of you have walked in that. But when Jesus Christ comes in and he saves us, I'm I'm convinced, and Romans 5 teaches this, Romans 6, I'm sorry, that with the same gusto that we used to run after sin, we are now to have that same gusto and even more running after righteousness. And a lot of you probably went pretty hard after sin. We go hard after sin. But will we have even more of a desire, a higher level of just desire burning within us so that we would say, I want to find more good works to do. I want to be a zealous for good works kind of Christian. I want my life to be marked by zeal for good works before the God who made me and the God who saved me. I want to be zealous for good works. So as we're going to talk about this passage, it teaches that we're saved by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and I do want to continually keep touching on that. But it says, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. Before even talking about good deeds, Paul reminds you, you can't save yourself. You can't. Jesus Christ is the one who saves. Jesus Christ is the one who gave himself to purify us. We can only receive this by grace through faith. But Paul is not afraid to, at the end of this, tag on. Because God desires to save a people who are zealous for good works. Having the understanding that I'm saved by grace through faith, I can now walk boldly in this understanding that I am to run this race as a Christian, zealous for good works. So with this understanding, let's go back to Ephesians 2. And we'll just look at these verses in context, and we're just going to cover verses 1 through 10. And then, like I said, what we're going to do is expand out a little bit even further into the book of Ephesians. Then we'll expand further out into the writings of Paul. Then we'll expand out even further into the teaching of the New Testament on this exact same subject. And again, my goal here is to challenge you. I do want to encourage you, though. And so let's look here at Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll just take a few verses at a time. But it says this, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We're going to get a pretty morbid and dark and scary picture here, and I think Paul is doing that intentionally because before the glorious sunrise of verse 4, Paul shows us how dark and wicked life is apart from Christ, even if you don't think it is. The word of God is saying it is. So the picture that we get here is almost like a river of dead bodies. Imagine just a river of dead bodies. And a couple words that you could circle if you're taking notes in your Bibles, you could circle the word dead in verse 1. And then in verse 2, according to the course, specifically the word course. Imagine a river, a droplet of water might be able to move in and out of that river, but it's, it's going where the river is taking it. There's no way it can move any other direction except for the way that the river is taking. And that is the picture that Paul is painting here. Apart from Christ, we are all like a river of dead bodies going according to the course of this world. And we might be able to maneuver in and out, but we're heading in the same direction. There's no escape from the course of this river of death. Now, if you have the NIV, it might say ways, according to the ways of this world. And the Greek word is just simply aeon. And in its most literal form, it means age. And there is one translation, I believe it's the Darby translation. It says, according to the age of this world. But this, the idea is the same. There is a system of things in this age by which all who are dead in their trespasses and sins, they can maneuver around within that system, but they're going in the same direction. The final result is all going to be the same. The river all leads to the same place which we'll talk about in a minute, the waterfall of the wrath of God. It's all heading in that direction. Now, it's a dark and morbid picture, but it's not even done yet. Paul says here, and also in verse 2, he says, not only are we walking apart from Christ, we're dead in our sins and trespasses, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, as if that's not bad enough. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air. That is the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Referring here to Satan, not only is this a river of dead bodies moving toward the waterfall of the wrath and judgment of God, but this is also governed by Satan himself. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says, The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He is the God of this age. Um, and he is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Now, some people might say, wait a second, that's a little bit more dark than anything I ever walked in. I don't think I was that bad. Maybe some people, I know of some people that maybe that was talking about, but there must be some sort of an exception for me because I don't think I was really that bad. Let's keep moving through the passage and look at verse 3. Among them we too all. We all. We all walked in this darkness that we underestimate, I think, sometimes how grievous sin is. We all walked in it, every single one of us. And it's a grievous thing, and I think sometimes we downplay sin as though it's something light, something not heavy, something that God is not concerned about, that he can kind of glance at and overlook, but instead the scripture teaches we were dead in it. And not just a few of us, not just the worst of the worst, but all 
every single one of us. Among them, we too all, formerly, lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And let's unpack this a little bit. Unless somebody might say, well, okay, I can understand the concept. I was dead in my sins and trespasses, so that means I must not have been accountable because I couldn't have really done anything else. I was in this river. I didn't have any control of which way I was going. It's not my fault. There's no accountability. God really won't be able to rightly judge me. Paul clarifies that here. He says that we, although we were dead, circle the word lived in what? The lusts of our flesh. We're dead to sin, dead in sin, but we're also alive in it as well, actively engaging in it. Not just passively, but actively living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging, circle that word, indulging actively the desires of the flesh and the mind. Although there is this river of dead bodies, every single one of them wants to be there. There's a joy in it. Even though there's misery in it, they're indulging We're indulging, I have indulged before the life of Christ in the lusts of the flesh. And scripture does not pull punches, lest we think sin is just something light. It's heavy. So much that it invokes the wrath of God, as it says here, it says, and we were by nature children of what? Wrath. Even as the rest. God hates sin. And he's redeeming a people from it. But he hates sin. And in his holiness and in his justice, and we learn about God in the scriptures that he is so holy and he's so wonderful, that sin is a major affront to him, incurring his wrath because he, in his great mercy, is not going to allow evil to last forever. And you might think it's a mean thing for God to pour out his wrath, but instead, to think of it, if God were to just allow evil for all eternity, never ending, I'm grateful that my God is going to one day bring a swift end to sin. Thank Jesus that eternity will not be riddled with sin. That there is coming a day when there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying, no more suffering. All of those things are a result of sin. But when sin is removed on that glorious day, we will be able to rejoice in untarnished glory, standing before God and worshiping the one who has removed it as far as the east is from the west, destroyed it, gotten rid of it. Thank you, Jesus. His wrath, even in the book of Revelation, is worthy of praise. They are praising him on account of his wrath. He's worthy of being praised, not just for the attributes that we like, but also for those which might cause us a little bit of, I would say, tears. Um, It's a fearful thing to think about. It should not be talked about flippantly because we as Christians, we desire that none go there. And that's why we share the gospel, to call people into salvation. Now, um, Paul is going to go on and state the obvious here. With this dark picture, we're going to see what God does in this amazing grace. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. 
as the glorious sun rises over this very cold and bleak and dark three verses that we just read. I hope you feel the warmth of the word of God being washed over you here now with verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness kindness towards us in Christ. This is a wonderful passage, and I say that Paul states the obvious because he says, by grace you have been saved. Amen, Brother Paul. By grace. I was dead. I could not have saved myself. It was simply by grace. Yes, absolutely, Paul. But what we were, we all were, lost in this wonderful or terrifying picture. But God saved, and he acted, and he delivered, and he is still doing that today. He did that in each and every single one of you as believers. He has saved you. God saved And not because I loved him or because I deserved it, but instead because of what? Because of the great love with which he loved us. The mercies of God. And I know, and I've, okay, but I hope that we're like, there is some part of us that wants to just clap our hands now. In his great love and in his mercy, he has saved us because of the great love with which he loved us. He loves us. With the love that he set on us before the foundations of the world, he loves his people and he says, I'm not going to let you drift down that river of death. I'm going to save my people. Every single one of his people who he has set his love on with the great love with which he loved us, he saved us. And I pray that that creates within us, even if it's not showing here as we listen to the sermon, some part of us where I'm saying, hallelujah, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for saving me. Because of the great love with which you loved me, I've been saved. And I deserved anything but, but you saved me. And not only that, but he also lavished us beyond measure. Look with me at verse 7. It says, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He is just showing off at this point. He's saying, I'm just showing the whole world my grace that I've given you. And what is that? We see it in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies. This is not just a God who says, I'm going to forgive your sins and wash you clean, but I want you to stay over there. And I'll be over here. We're going to be at peace. I'm not going to destroy you. But you just stay over there. This is, this is a God who draws us close. He seats us with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places on the throne of Jesus. We're seated with him. We are with him. Seated in the heavenly places. He has lavished us. Not only just saved us and kept us at a distance, but lavished us with his grace and his mercy. There's a story um, of a mom um, whose son was, um, whose son was murdered, and um, so she goes and she visits in the prison the man who had killed her son. And the good Christian woman that she was, she says, "I'm going to forgive him." 
but I'm also just going to kind of let him rot in prison. He has a death sentence coming up, a death penalty. I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to do what I need to do, but that's really it. And I've done my part. And so she goes and she sits across the table from this man. And sitting there, hearing how nobody has visited him. His mom died of an overdose. His father in prison. And he's been left there to rot. And she notices that as she forgives him, her heart begins to just melt for this man. And the grace of God coming over her. She looks at this man and says, from this day forward, you're my son. You're my son. Not only do I forgive you, and I'm going to walk away and leave you to rot, but you're my son now. And this woman goes and has his, on account of her, the death sentence stayed and visits him putting money in his commissary, actively visiting this man who murdered her son, who deserved not even her forgiveness, but they say she gave him the forgiveness. You might think that's a lot. But then she goes and she wraps around this man and she says, you're my son now. This is a small, I think, infinitesimal, small version of what the love of God is like in saving us And not only forgiving us, but says, I'm calling you my son now. I'm calling you my daughter now. I'm lavishing you with something that you don't even deserve. I'm going to have you sit on the throne of my son. When you blasphemed him and you mocked him and you scorned him and you rejected him and you denied him, you walked according to the course of the the prince of the power of the air, you did all of these things, I'm going to forgive you. And now I'm going to have you sit on the throne with my son. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. No kidding, Paul. Through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I cannot boast. I cannot boast. And praise God for this glorious truth that we cling to in these verses. But Paul's exhortation does not end there. Look with me at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for filthy rags, which God prepared. That doesn't say that, right? For good works. For good works. God has prepared before the foundations of the world that you would walk in good works. Not filthy rags. I am not a filthy rag producing Christian. I produce good works that God says these are good works. Not because of me, but because of what he has done. He has good works that I should walk in, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We are like a masterpiece of God that God is sanctifying. He has justified us, and now he is continually sanctifying us. And glory to God, one day we will be glorified for all eternity. 
But God is stripping off sin in us. As we put off the old man, we're putting on the new man. And we're to walk in righteousness. Walk with deeds that are pleasing to the Lord. Good works. Good works, Christian. And so the context of Ephesians 2 here lifts up good works. Now I want to look at just a few things. We're just going to try to move quickly here through a few scriptures to show the context of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Speaks about us running the race for good works. But also the context of Ephesians itself. And then again, we're going to look at some of the context of Paul's verses and other books. And then we're going to look at the New Testament uh, kind of outside of Paul. But we're just going to move quickly here. But look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 9. Same book. In case you might think, I can do nothing pleasing to the Lord. I can't. Because all I do, my good works are like filthy rags. Verse 9 and 10, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Is this a desire of yours? You want to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. You read the word. You study his word. You want to find out what is pleasing to him. I want to say, God, I want to please you today. I want to be a believer who pleases you today. I want to find out what pleases you, and I want to do it. I want to do it. When we preach the gospel to the lost, when we go into the world and we tell people about Jesus Christ, that's pleasing to the Lord. When husbands resist lust, when they're spending time away from their wives in their work week, and they're having temptations draw at them constantly, and the man says, I love my wife. I'm committed to my wife. pleasing to the Lord. You find out what's pleasing to the Lord and we do it. When you work honestly at your job, even though your boss isn't really paying you much attention, even if you're not making as much as you feel like you deserve, you're not working for them, you're working for the Lord. Finding out what's pleasing to the Lord, God is pleased. Now let's go outside of the book of Ephesians and just look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul talks about this elsewhere. Verse 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is causing us to will, not only will, but also to work. He gives me the desire to even want to do it, and then he sustains me to do the good deed that is for his pleasure. Praise him. Praise him. We are able to give good pleasure to the Lord in the works that we walk in that God has foreordained before the foundations of the world. When you feel apathy start setting in and laziness and lust and greed and fear, all of these things which begin creeping in and seeping into the lives of the Christian, I pray that we would rebuke that in Jesus' name. And I'm going to walk and I'm going to say, I'm going to set my eyes on Jesus Christ. I'm going to shred off every, everything that entangles me, that slows me down. And I want to run with zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. I call you to turn from these things and do what is pleasing to God, church. And I don't know exactly what's going on in each of your lives. 
But I pray that the Holy Spirit, even in this moment, would reveal some things that we're clinging to, that we could shed off to run with zeal in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Galatians um, chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. The same concept taught over and over and over. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Will, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good. Let us do good. Let us live upstanding lives as Christians and let us run the race with endurance again and again and again. This isn't going to save you. This isn't going to merit salvation for you. This isn't going to cause you to earn it or deserve it. But yet still, as a Christian, run the race. Run the race. Do good. Some examples here. When you're making a meal for a church member, or especially for the household of faith. Something you might think small like this. Imagine a wonderful smile going across the face of God as you make a meal for a mother who's just had a kid. Or you go and visit somebody in the hospital from our congregation who's been had a hard time. Or the sink's not working and somebody comes over your house and fixes a sink that you have no idea how to fix. God being pleased with these things and God looking at you and his child and saying, I'm pleased with this. This is good. This is not a filthy rag before my face. This is good. This is a wonderful thing that you have done, my child. Imagine God saying that to us. When you're using your spiritual gifts in serving, how about that? 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 were to use our spiritual gifts for the good of the people collectively, using our spiritual giftings, whether you're preaching or whether you're praying for one another, whether you're encouraging each other, sharing the mercies of God with somebody who is struggling with sin, all of these things, we're doing good as we encourage one another. The last one I want to look at, and then we'll just go back to Ephesians 2 in a second here, is I want to look at some words from Jesus right at the end of the Bible um, in the book of Revelation, and words about our Lord Jesus in the church and the day that we all really long for and look forward to. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, and we'll look at verse 8 too. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Imagine that. Imagine that day. The marriage supper, we get the crazy announcement, the marriage supper of the Lamb is ready. The people of God enter in. To be united with our Lord Jesus Christ on that glorious day. Verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in filthy rags, filthy and ugly, for the fine linen is, no. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is what? The righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. 
God looking at me, somebody who was a producer of constant filthy rags, has cleansed me and made me born again and made me a new creation and washed over me with his love and lavished me so much that he would even produce in this past tense filthy rags producer now to somebody who can produce fine and clean bright linen that I will be clothed in because of the grace of God working through me to produce works that are for his good pleasure. Glory to God. This is a wonderful thing. And I want you to be encouraged and I want you to be strengthened as the people of God to run the race and to live with zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. And so just taking all of this and going back to Ephesians 2 and, uh, verse 10, we're going to close on this. Um, so again, we've been talking about some application and I just want to give a little bit more. Simply put, As we read Ephesians 2 and verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. I'm convinced that these good works are just simply obedience. It's nothing fantastic. It's nothing lavish. It's nothing extraordinary oftentimes. Sometimes it is. I mean, it's magnificent the things that Christians have accomplished over the course of history. We look back, but it's also the little things. It's the little things. And it's not obedience that we're mustering up in ourselves. Simple things like when wives submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5. Imagine that. The whole world saying everything to the contrary. And we're just saying, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to believe what the word says. Wives, submit to your husbands. Or when men are stripped of their masculinity and saying that, you don't have to lay down your life for you. You don't even have to open the door for her. That's actually kind of chauvin. It's rude to open a door for a woman nowadays. Let alone lay your life down for her. Lay down your life for your bride. Like scripture teaches, when a husband says, my wife, I'm lifting her up so high that I'm willing to lay down my life for her. If anybody's going to die, it's not going to be Danielle. It's going to be me. They might, if they get to Danielle after, but it's, it's through me. I'm, I'm dying first. Just like Christ and his church. Things like that, when we flee immorality, when that temptation to watch pornography comes across your screen as you're scrolling, the next thing you know, you're flooded with these temptations. When we resist that, pleasing to the Lord, I say no. When we're devoted parents raising up our kids to love the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're taking the time changing diapers, feeding them meals, stuff that might seem tedious, reading bedtime stories, loving our children, being invested in their lives instead of being absent and selfish, going to be with our children and having an active and engaged role in our children's lives. This is glorious, pleasing to the Lord. When we're not greedy with our money and hoarding it all up for ourselves so that we can just live higher and more lifted up than other people, but instead we are saying, I have been gifted so much. I want to be able to help others. I want to be able to nourish others. I want to be able to supply for the needs of others. Pleasing to the Lord. Little things. Nobody else knows. Your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing, but God sees it. And God is pleased. When we serve those in need, the homeless in our community, the drug addicts, when we go outside of these walls of the church and we reach people who desperately need Jesus Christ, And for people to love them and have compassion upon them and be tender with them and not overlook them when the whole world does. When we preach the gospel, 
This life is very short. This life is very short. And as I've been saying and as Scripture teaches, I want us to be all people who run the race, run the race, run the race, fight the good fight, stand in the gap, be the Christian that you'll want to be and wish you were on the day when you're standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and we look back on our lives and say, I don't want to say I wasted anything. I want to look back and say, God, I ran, I ran the race. I ran the race. So let me just close with this verse. Um, and this is a, one of my favorite verses. I think we're going to sing about this in a second. Something, a danger that can come with a preaching and a sermon on good works. And we say, I'm going to run that race. And now we start looking at others negatively. Pridefully saying, I'm, I'm running faster than other people. Or they're running faster than me. All of these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. And I want, you to, I want you to write this down. I challenge people to memorize this verse if you would want to take up that challenge. Remember this verse. The Apostle Paul says this, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And by his grace toward me, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But listen, I labored more than all of them Yet, not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul's like, I worked harder than Peter, James, John, Andrew. I ran faster than all of them. Yet, not me. I can't take any, any credit for it. When God looks at me on that day and says, well done, good and faithful servant, and gives me a crown of glory, I'm going to cast it at his feet. I'm not going to say, yeah, I, I, I did earn that. You, you recognize, you saw, you saw what I did there. I did that. That's me. No, I'm going to cast the crown before the Lord because it's not I. It's Christ in me. It's the grace of God working through me. And so I pray that for each and every one of us, we would never have a pharisaical kind of hip, hypocritical spirit. I'm humbly saying, I'm running this race fast, but I'm not doing it to show everybody how much better I am. Or It's not like that. I'm doing this because... God is working in me, and it's his grace, and I couldn't do this on my own, and by his grace, I want to run this race really fast. So let us be a people like that, church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we love you, and we give you glory and honor and praise in this place together. And as we have just read, it is all by your grace, every single bit of it, I think, Lord, of a, a child who wants to buy a present for their, their mother, but they need to ask their mom for the, the money to buy it. We want to run the race quickly, Lord. We want to serve you. We want to be pleasing to you, but we can't do it unless you provide for us to be able to do it. And so, God, we want to be a people who run quickly, who serve you, who are zealous, but we need your grace to do it, Father. So please supply. Help us to be a people who are zealous for good works as we stand on the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ alone saves. We don't look anywhere else for salvation. None, none, None are like Jesus. Jesus Christ alone, the one who died on the cross for our sins, we behold him, the eternal Son of God, who on that cross took my place, who bore the weight of the sin that I could not bear, and he saved us, God. Thank you so very much. We praise you, Lord. 
we will worship you forever and ever and ever. We look forward to the day of resurrection. But God, help us to run the race now. Until that day, God, may we run quickly. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.